Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Hi everyone, this is the 17th episode of the Strategy and Insider podcast. I very much appreciate you tuning in. My name is Thomas. I'm a partner with Strategy and and the host of this podcast on all future related health topics. In our last episode with UCB's James Sackheim, we immersed ourselves in biopharmaceuticals and discussed the growing interest of tech companies in the pharma and healthcare industry, as well as the benefits of the combination of groundbreaking technologies with pharma's capabilities of curing people. Today, we will dive even deeper and tackle the topics of precision medicine together with a representative of a neural engineering company. I'm tremendously honored to welcome Emil Juic as my guest today and look forward to a certainly very insightful conversation on neural interfaces and AI. Emil is the CEO and co-founder of BIOS Health, which is a renowned and awarded neural engineering startup from Cambridge that uses artificial intelligence and neural interfaces to read and write on the nervous system in real time enabling a new field of precision medicine. Bias is applying this technology first to build better, more targeted drugs that affect the nervous system more precisely. Their ultimate vision, however, is to deliver software-as-a-service type healthcare with new prescriptions delivered via algorithms and a process that will cut costs, increase efficiency, and deliver a high quality and a high level of personalization. Emil himself began working in deep tech startups at the age of 17 and has a bachelor's degree in engineering from the University of Cambridge. And until today, he has held leadership and technology roles in five related startups and has over 10 years of industrial and academic R&D experience. Also, he is a former University of Cambridge PhD researcher, having specialized in computational neuroscience and machine learning, and has used his knowledge to pioneer the use of AI for interpreting neural data. As one result of his impressive career so far, he has been added to the Forbes 30 under 30 list in 2018. And with all that said, Emil, Thank you so much for joining today's recording. I truly appreciate that you take the time and very much look forward to our discussion. Thanks, Thomas. Emil, as I mentioned in my introductory, a very long list of your recent accomplishments. And you started your career already when you were 17, prior to finishing your academic education. What was your motivation to enter the workforce as such a, at such a young age? Well, so I think it's a good question, Thomas. I think in hindsight, it looks like a, it was a very good choice, but really my um, original desire to get into the workforce was a very practical one. I, I was raised in um, Scotland by my mother, who's raising us as a single parent. And my main motivations initially were partially economic and partially curiosity. So I was determined to uh, find a source of income to support my you know, further studies, but also I, ha I hadn't been convinced that I'd found my purpose. And I, you know, when I was young, I wasn't convinced that uh, the career paths that I could read about were right for me. So I wanted to find a job in industry, utilizing my interests to find a route forwards. And in, in hindsight, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. But at the time, I think I was just trying to be a bit independent and also a bit curious before committing to a long uh, university career. So it's not really that you actually planned it back then uh, where you are standing today. 
Uh, that, that's what oh, I, yeah, absolutely not. I think um, when I was in high school, I saw a presentation from um, this founder of a startup, and it turned out that I spoke to him and asked. I moved to Cambridge to work for him, essentially a bit like his apprentice, and I learned many things in helping um, you know grow that business with him and the rest of the team. But it, it was the inspiration of the idea and the project that made me join. Uh, he was the first person I'd seen in my hometown who was talking about making something positive, um, you know, using technology to drive a frontier forward. In that case, it was a fuel cell technology. In, in mm. 2005, there was a lot of optimism around medical technologies, but also renewable technologies. And so I just found it very interesting. I was very curious. And then in hindsight, it gave me very early exposure to deep technology startups and the culture there and the motivation that you can get even when the salary is very low, but the people who you work with have great values and are very intelligent. I think that became a a very strong sort of flavor of career that ever since I've really been drawn to. So a couple of years later now, of course, you can look back on, uh, I think, five high caliber leadership roles in awarded and, as said, globally also renowned startups. And this to me shows that you certainly must have both the entrepreneurial stamina as well as the leadership skills to be able to, to found, but also steer new companies. How would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I've been very lucky in the sort of seven years between the early startup experience and then starting BIOS. So when I think about my leadership style, I'm really sort of fortunate to have apprenticed and to have trained and, and worked with many people from a range of disciplines. And so I can sort of empathize with their journey. But I also am acutely aware that our business only grows when we have that diversity of effort and we respect what people are bringing into the business because we're trying to pursue a new opportunity that combines skill sets that have never been sort of effectively combined before. And so I think there are sort of three things that drive the leadership culture, um, which extends more, you know, more than just myself. I think I expect that from my leadership team here as well. One is that we listen to what the other people in the company are saying, because everyone who joins our team has deep capability and, you know, really astounding experiences in their own right. And that often they're trying to say something to us, even in, if it's in a very different, more specialized language to our own. And what we expect from everyone alongside listening is to be open-minded. You know, these are very professionalized fields, and a lot of us have succeeded because we've been, you know, really succeeding against existing frameworks. But if we're going to find the value in productizing and, you know, finding a customer fit from something that hasn't been done before, we need to be open-minded to explore something that we may have low belief in on the first statement. So alongside listening and being open-minded, I think the leadership in a company like ours, where it's very deep tech, is you need to be able to master all that complexity through providing very clear and simple fundamental directions. And so I spend most of my time listening, trying to be open-minded, also sharing a lot of the challenges with peers of mine out with our company. Because again, with a deep tech business, there are very few who are directly competing. And so that clarity and uh, you know creating that environment to hear other views, but then to ultimately say, you know, every month there are some clear decisions that are being made. Mm. That's the job of the leadership team in a deep tech startup like ours. You personally seem to have adopted to me also when working through your CV until here, a, a rather unconventional academic and professional career path where you combined extensive real life startup experience with state of the art education from the University of Cambridge. And next to 
founding those startups that I referenced earlier, you even worked for a Formula One team back in 2010, if I remember correctly. How has your career path been guided by that? And did it help you on your way towards where you are today? Yeah, I think um, when I look back at those sort of first 12 years or so, having started very, very young, I was, you know, to start with, I was just very determined to work very hard. And I, that sounds very silly, but in hindsight, that was you know, the number one thing for me was to, uh, you know, establish myself. And I could see in many of my peers over time, we all have that desire to apply ourselves to a problem. And second of all, I, you know, I was discovering along the way what I was good at, but also had very good mentors that could help me understand what my weaknesses were. And some of those um, lessons are best learned when you're working with people who've been in very, you know, high performance organizations, such as a Formula One team or, you know, massive engineering firm, and I think at the start, I probably would have looked quite unusual from a career path because I was you know, motivated by joining interesting people who had a mission where I felt like my particular skill set could both be useful, but also where I would learn. And I wasn't so concerned after a while as to whether that fitted into a particular you know, existing career trajectory. In hindsight, after about eight years, I, I realized that most of the time that I achieved some form of success, it had been because I was the first person in that organization or team to be working with sensing data and some you know, analytics approaches. And this is what made me sort of realize that to take a risk on the, a machine learning PhD was a better opportunity for me than to go into industry at the time. I think in hindsight, I was very lucky to have um, had a diverse set of experiences, and then to have discovered uh, you know a few personal skills that I would invest in, so I could be a productive member of a team, and to learn that that is kind of the most important thing. And so I think realizing that after a while, it's about a personal journey, personal skills, contribution to your team, and then missions that matter. That's I think what had ultimately guided me, you know, without realizing it at the time. No, sounds terrific um, to look back. Um, yeah, already at this stage of your career uh, like this, and your career is to me fully dedicated to the combination of new technology and healthcare in the form of translating uh, a brain's information into neural data that can be read, but also can be used to avoid or it, at least manipulate diseases. This is clearly a part of a trend worldwide towards prevention and subsequently the emergence of well-being as a considerable area of healthcare. And on a more personal level, what does health, but also well-being mean to you personally? I do feel that personally, in a way that it's true now, it probably wouldn't have been true 15 years ago, but will be true for the next 20 to 30 years at least. You know, the need for improved healthcare is a driving strategic force. So this is the thing for me to work on now as an individual and, and for many others in, you know, who have the skill set to do so. It's a meaningful contribution to our society. I have sort of two reasons why I chose to you know, look at that intersection of new technology and AI with healthcare. One is that most of the rest of my family, so my mother, my father, my, even my brother, they are um, medical professionals. They're clinicians of some format. So even when I was growing up around the dinner table, I'd hear you know, these day-to-day sort of -day discussions around medicine. And it was sort of a curious thing for me because probably it normalized the professional realities of being in medicine. But I always felt like I was a, a scientist or I wanted to do something less day-to-day. -day. But it had created in the back of my mind a familiarity and a, a knowledge of people who were you know, working in that field. 
But the thing that really made me change my path and focus solely on healthcare was after the sort of first year and a half where I'd been part of this fuel cell startup and we had you know listed on the stock market and, and exited, I went back to my hometown to spend some time with my family in, in the gap between then and going to university. And I was um, spending some time finally speaking to my grandfather. It turns out that my grandfather had had a similar journey to mine and I realized finally that I had someone in my family who wasn't, wasn't a doctor. But unfortunately, he was staying with us because he was at the late stages of his diabetes and he was coming to Scotland to access better healthcare. And every single day, my family would be talking about what was best for him and how to help him. And I could see the role they were playing in supporting someone I cared deeply about, essentially my kind of main my main mentor was only powered by the kind of care and skill set of the medical profession. But then, unfortunately, after a few months, I was actually with him after a surgical procedure. He contracted an infection and, and very quickly he passed away. And I was suddenly surrounded by this reality where that, that network and that community couldn't do anything. And there was suddenly this sort of surrender that happened, you know, some point in the middle of the night, there was nothing else that could be done. And you sort of feel like after going through so many personal journeys with someone you care about on you know on, in a healthcare profession you're always so grateful when someone has a solution and so the moment that you see there isn't one you realize there's a calling to help provide the next you know the next options and it's that sort of spirit of actually you know from a, as a technologist i could help the next version of a family like mine you know dealing with a challenge like this and give them one more piece of you know control over that quality of life that made me go back to cambridge you know actually meet an, a medical device startup and work with them on on their first product and i i noticed in the culture of those who develop new medical technologies and bring them to market that there is that um you, you can take a long-term perspective. It can take, you know, a number of years to bring something out there, but you're helping push forwards that um, availability of something that meets a very personal need. And this struck me again recently. I, I lost my grandmother during the COVID times, and she actually was suffering from very late stages of heart disease. And, you know, on top of the huge challenges of battling that disease, battling the side effects, battling the kind of loss of quality of life, you know, on top of that, we had the need to stay remote and being unable to reach her. And I think now more than ever, um, every single one of us is going to go through, um, you know, these incredibly personal healthcare related challenges. And mm. these technologies are going to be needed to make it possible for us to give people the control and quality of life they deserve at the scale that I think the, the world's demanding it. And I'm very sorry to hear about uh, your grandmother, of course, and, and also listening desperately on how you are seeing um, healthcare and well-being for you personally, but also for society and how you can contribute via BIOS and, and other startups that you have been working with and being part of yeah, to, to make a difference in that sector. You also went through a, a period of COVID, obviously, and uh, myself and, and our teams, but also when speaking to clients out there, COVID did present uh, major challenges, obviously, to, to big corporates, but also smaller ones when it comes to creativity of teams, motivation of teams standing in front of flip charts and, and kind of not only getting their head around uh, a topic, but also getting their heart behind the topic and uh, aspects such as teaming and, and bonding. This is really something that was very short in those COVID times, which I assume are super important also for startup companies like yours. How did you experience that and handle that, if I may? Yeah, I'd say because we're a sort of deep tech company, we have so many different disciplines that need to effectively collaborate. So I think we decided very early on that 
our competitive advantage would be in the ability for our teams to still come together and still collaborate and still achieve their joint creative efforts as much as we could keep an element of resilience by still Mm. being hybrid. So we invested very heavily early on in testing lots of different collaboration tools and frameworks. We, you know, as a sort of senior management, we tried to lead by example and to make sure we were inclusive in using online tools to keep some of the remote team involved in a discussion, but also to um, make it clear that our job was to be sharing knowledge and to be trying to create that collective output because we were a smaller company and because we are able to follow certain protocols, we were able to you know, reestablish a hybrid working, not just a fully remote working. And we think that's been a huge advantage for us. Uh, it started off, I think, with our productivity. But recently, we've seen that actually in terms of retention and also people joining our company, they're seeking that. You know, they're, they're seeking to work with colleagues and they need to see them and learn from them. Absolutely. And so we, we think that's an, an added advantage for us now. So many people, and I suspect an even greater share of our listeners here, will surely have heard about AI and artificial intelligence supporting actually efficiency in diseases, um, when it comes to diagnosing, when it comes to medical decision making, when it comes to treatments as part of an effective chronic disease management and the like. And to me, this really seems like a huge fundamental shift in the way we think about healthcare, almost like how genetics or DNA back then changed medicine. Would you agree with that, that this is a a very pivotal point in healthcare these days, or how would you see that and calibrate that? Um, First of all, just to introduce what we're doing at BIOS. At BIOS, we're using AI and neural interfaces to read and write the nervous system in real time. Um, and so we're trying to enable the next frontier in precision medicine. You know, we sort of see um, our technology as a platform, which is the infrastructure to develop therapies that can be informed by signals in our nerves in the same way that you already design therapies that are informed by your DNA signature. And, you know, we can, we're trying to make sure that we can help speed up the development of new therapies, make mm-hmm. them faster and make them cheaper and, um, you know, make them more personal. But Specifically, the reason that the nervous system is so important is because it plays such a fundamental role in the ongoing management of your health. The brain evolved half a billion years ago to regulate organ function. Mm -hmm. So when you think about every second of every day, if your blood pressure is wrong or if it's right, or if you're having inflammation that shouldn't be happening, the first thing that you have to look at is whether the brain is regulating your um, homeostasis mm-hmm. correctly. Now, where does that fit into the picture of chronic diseases? It, you know, chronic diseases are these diseases that we're never cured of. They're diseases that kind of come predominantly with age and trauma or sort of you know predispositions. They build up over our life. And to look at it one way, the brain and the nervous system is the sort of front line. It's the continuous transmission of signals around the body that it, and then the reactions and the reflexes that are trying to keep us healthy. And so in the same way that DNA is the sort of hard drive of biology and any faults there become permanent faults, or if there's an error later on, we get something like a cancer. The continuous decline is happening often with the neural code um, as a kind of core language. So 
really understanding that for the first mm-hmm. time in real time with AI, uh, you know, it translating it for us in the same way that AI can translate a foreign language, but in this case, translating a disease and its progression for a doctor or for a drug developer or, or ultimately for implants that can respond in real time is a foundational sort of change in our relationship with so many different chronic diseases. And so we see that as a kind of huge paradigm shift where you would have, you know, a personal profile that you could continuously create of these signals. And then you could have really precise, very personal medicines available to you to try and have much more control over your diseases. And um, can I just briefly come back to what bias does when it comes to reading and writing neural signals? I mean, Bottom line, the neural system, as you rightly say so, is involved basically in every part of our human body, right? And yes. uh, any disease or any well-being or, or unwell-being might be affected by that, be it um, cardiovascular diseases, be it Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, paraplegics, and, and you name it. Given that you're also kind of writing neural signals, how do you cater for potential side effects of that? Because if you are sending signals into the human body, how can you be sure that they are staying and just doing what they supposedly should do at a place where you want to have that? Yes, I think the first thing to actually highlight is that human beings have been using the nervous system to medicate ourselves for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So the beta blocker is a drug that we take and it changes our neural signals. And, and it's, you know, it's very commonly used for various forms of cardiovascular disease because it mm-hmm. is changing the sort of level of signal that goes through your nervous system to prevent your body from having this runaway sort of fight or flight response. And so it's a very strong example of medicines we've been using to treat ourselves where it's actually very well known that medicines like the beta blocker have a lot of side effects because we're flooding the nervous system with molecules that hit everywhere in our body. And, um, the, you know, actually for context, the beta blocker is one of the sort of big five treatments for heart disease. It's kind of the, one of the best examples because it's, it's a disease that's so prevalent and has so few new solutions. The beta blocker and the other big five were all discovered more than 50 years ago. So pharmaceutically, we've really struggled to come up with major broad scale innovations, but actually we've been using neural medicine as our frontline treatment for a very long time. And the difficulty there is very similar to the difficulty in the use of um, a stimulator, so something like a pacemaker to stimulate neural pathways directly. Whether you're hitting it with a molecule or even more, more complex you know, intervention like a CRISPR editing of a pathway or, or a stimulation, the tools are very, very blunt um, or have been blunt for a very, very long time. We don't read the responses of the nerves and we don't track when it's got off-target and on-target mm-hmm. effects except after you know, very long trials of many years and with you know tens or hundreds of thousands of people. So what we actually see as the, you know, the big opportunity is to help all therapies that are targeting the nervous system, whether it's a stimulation, very you know, a digital you know, electrical signal that hits a nerve and acts over a few milliseconds, or if it's a molecule that acts over you know, days and weeks. For the very first time, we actually want to use AI and neural interfaces, which is a way of connecting to neural tissues to record the actual impact on those neural pathways, those neural mechanisms, and for the very first time in in real time, show the the medical effect you're causing. And um, that's the way to unlock this challenge. It's the way to reduce side effects. It's the way to target your treatments to more precise populations 
the road to reducing side effects and to develop better, more personalized medicines is to, is to use the reading mm-hmm. um, of the nervous system as you design the treatment and then as you make the clinical decisions. And ultimately, then in an implant, it starts to become a very powerful mode in the long run. I think you know it's still only for small populations right now, but in the long run, your implants will be able to read your neural response and titrate instantly. Hmm. So, so we see this is all part of one big continuum of precise neural medicine that comes from using the reading as well as the writing. And I think the writing is the kind of showy part, but actually the reading is what enables this um, whole field to jump forwards. Absolutely. First understanding to then act upon, right? Um, so given your ultimate vision of that kind of SaaS type healthcare, how will delivering this software as a treatment affect the scalability, also especially in rural areas, but also the availability of treatments for patients yeah in the western world but also in in less developed markets yes so we've been doing actually quite a lot of work with um, healthcare providers and even some payers around the benefits of neural digital therapies Mm -hmm. neural digital therapies are the therapies that we talk about having been informed by neural reading and insights and again you know to stress there are sort of the immediately available types where we would be optimizing potentially as a companion with a normal um, molecular therapeutic or mm-hmm. optimizing the performance of maybe an on-market implant, but providing extra precision. And then there's the long-term view where you do move to you know either wearables or implantables that are interacting with your nervous system in real time. And you know in the early case, it's already beneficial to allow medicines to be targeted if you have you know let's say you have a wearable and we're able to provide a biomarker by analyzing the less invasive neural signals we can allow a medicine that works for a very small part of a big chronic disease population to finally be trialed in maybe a few months with tens of patients and find a gain of function that justifies it being brought to market and for a clinician you can provide a, a level of clarity around the progression of all of the patients you're looking at um, especially you know actually we found that the clinicians that we work with we've been focusing you know almost exclusively on um, cardiovascular patients over the past couple of years and, and during the covid pandemic a lot of the clinicians who originally sort of started working with us because it was sort of a research angle and a pushing the frontiers came back and said this is actually foundational to how i could see myself keeping a high quality of care for my patients now that they are very fragile and need to shelter in our remote so that the reading of the nervous system even for normal decision making and normal care changes becomes a really helpful tool and allows them to save their time for those who need the interventions the most and lets the patients actually have more direct control. Now, if there is an ability, which is something we've actually been showing with um, some of our own in-house stimulation asset development trials, to provide a therapeutic effect when it can no longer be achieved with molecular therapeutics and you can essentially provide therapeutic effects, you can do it without um, these very high costs, very permanent interventions that are even more expensive. You've got a value that you can deliver for the really high unmet need populations. Now, the final bit of your question, I think, was in, you know, chronic diseases, the burden of that is, is hitting globally, right? So the big, big picture here is the cost of delivering healthcare for billions of people. It means that the overall cost of care has to go down per person and then the scale has to be enormous. So the promise of ultimately, you know, us developing purely software-based stimulations and read and write technology that could be used in, you know, wearables or very cheap implants, you know, allows you to then distribute 
and develop your new drugs as essentially software upgrades to very cheap kind of consumer electronic style products. So if you can develop a treatment that is a really good alternative to a molecular therapy and you can have a patient on a kind of subscription of all the right algorithms for them and they you know that the latest research can be you know instantly kind of remotely trialed and then delivered it lowers the overall cost of care but it vastly increases the addressable market for these treatments as well yeah. and it would uh, obviously turn upside down any supply chain of the existing drugs and, and and the current makeup of pharma companies if this would kick in and a growing field of interest these days is obviously alzheimer's disease given that biogen launched aduhelm in the us uh, there is more companies such as Roche, Lilly, Novo, Aze, and others close the market. Um, given that you're uh, so entrenched in the neural system and also kind of active on the biomarker or data marker side of things, is that also an area of interest of yourselves in BIOS or um, are you not invested yourself into the Alzheimer's disease? In-house in BIOS, we're trying to focus on the sort of highest and fastest impacts for our sort of neurobiomarker technology. And we actually believe that the biggest impacts are in optimizing, building better medicines and molecular therapies, but also stimulations for predominantly the chronic diseases that are where there are neural pathways implicated, but the science is 20 to 30 years old. And that, those are diseases like inflammation, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, etc. However, everything we do is powered by this core platform. Our sort of neural digital therapy development platform is based on a very unique technology that allows us to gather you know, vast amounts of data, far more than the rest of the world can do. And you know, even our partnership with the NIH is validating the fact that we then offer a sort of tens of thousands of times faster speed up to then turning those data into insights that can be used to develop medicines. Now, that has a value proposition across the entire space in sort of neurological and other sort of CNS disorders. There, we look at a partnering strategy. And I think that for us is not on our in-house horizon, but it's something we do get approached about quite often. Yeah, I could imagine, given that growing interest, obviously, and, and your technology that is existent. In a recent news article, BIOS was actually mentioned among other European startups as one of the Davids fighting against Goliath, um, also known as Neuralink in the US, uh, that just announced its plans to implant chips in human brains to treat neural disorders. Given that you stated yourself in an article that you're a bit like Linux if Elon Musk is Microsoft, what are the benefits of being kind of the underdog and what will change for you personally, but also the company, if you would become that Goliath at some point? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um one thing I would say is that, you know, we are in the business of building what is a really deep technology business into a very global platform for developing a new type of therapy. So, so by definition, our mission is to be an incredibly significant company. If we see what um, Moderna and BioNTech have done by pioneering RNA or what Genentech did decades ago in pioneering, um, the, you know, the biotechnologies that allowed them to develop, you know, huge advances in availability of lots of medicines, BIOS is undertaking to do the same thing. I think that we have been very fortunate in that our backers and investors have seen that the technology that we bring to bear is, you know, it's a global field and we have actually hit a lot of world firsts a number of years before our sort of much more sort of well-funded counterparts like, like Neuralink. And it's been... Um, 
the case, though, that we have been very singular in our focus around developing a new class of healthcare and treatment. I think in the neurotech space, it will be an enormous market. You know, it's essentially the market for connecting computing technology to our bodies, to our brains, and to write, write software. And we would be very happy to be the global player for the healthcare applications. We think it's the biggest market that emerges first. And I think that for businesses like Neuralink, they're able to raise money to invest for outcomes that will come kind of 10 to 20 years down the road where you want to have you know, new types of hardware, new types of medical device. And you know, we think that actually at that point, once the technology is proven and once there are medical advances that can be only delivered by those higher bandwidth um, pieces of hardware, then you know, perhaps we partner in the future. So watching out for any news article uh, at some point stating that Neuralink is looking towards Cambridge and looking after BIOS at some point. Yeah. So innovation, even if it does make ton of sense sometimes, yeah, and there is clinical proof and, and science proof behind it, it doesn't necessarily find its way straight into clinical realities. And as we know, many physicians, but also organizations such as patient organizations, are sometimes still very hesitant when it comes to anything to do with artificial intelligence and machine learning type technologies. How do you personally get the medical community as well as regulation behind that and come around that uh, to using these type of tools and technologies that you are putting forward? I think um, the healthcare market is you know, a perfect example of, I think, the third wave of um, technology markets in that in a very great way that I hope doesn't change, the only interest of people in the healthcare space is for solutions that deliver patient benefit that make it more affordable to deliver that patient benefit and solutions that allow you to do that with you know some greater effectiveness some you know unlock a new solution and to the ai community what that means is that we have to a you know we have to collaborate and to understand the language of this market because it has its own rules you know the regulations the the payers the the way in which you know a clinician will accept this or not they need to be comfortable and trust us um, when we're bringing something complicated like an AI technology into the market. We cannot just sort of black box the technology mm -hmm. and expect people to trust us. And I think as long as you can focus on finding a way to, to deliver that benefit, then the beauty is that that trust becomes a moat that allows you to then you know take solutions faster the next time and we found that with our ecosystem uh, now that the sort of nhs the ministry of defense the some certain clinics work with us and also the national institutes of health i mean these are global leaders who've spent decades of their career pioneering treatment and now once they trust us you have a, a sort of a really powerful position to then take steps forward and our role in that is to then you know clarify the technology be ethical with how we design it and to think with all those stakeholders in mind but i think the, the final thing that is the challenge around ai is that it just has to be productized to the point where it's actually valuable and that is you know it's a big test of what you're developing. So for us, we are, you know, we are developing, you know, entirely new classes of product. You know, it's not sci-fi that we're trying to, um, you know, put out there. We're not to kind of come back to the Neuralink comment. The thing that allows us to enter the market is we're focused on delivering real benefit, and um, that is, I think, the most important thing. Yeah, and and deliver value in a way where you convince them using it via clinical evidence that you put forward uh, prior to them using it, I assume. That's what I'm yes. absolutely hearing. It needs to have a value that you can actually prove to someone using it and paying for it. Uh, otherwise, yes. you're not worth it. 
Yeah. Yeah. A recent Forbes article actually stated that making sense of medical data with AI and machine learning um, is one of the five biggest healthcare tech trends in 2022. Given that, what are the breakthroughs you personally expect within the next, let's say, five years? Yeah, so obviously starting with our kind of vision at BIOS, you know, we think that the data in the nervous system can power a huge range of insights. So uh, from segmenting patients, which means that from a personal perspective, knowing what your disease is doing every second of every day, rather than, you know, once a year in a checkup, we think that's a huge advance that the science is already, you know, mature. And it's the, you know, the availability of, you know, clinical teams mm -hmm. providing that insight is something we think will make a huge difference. And then obviously, you know, linked to that, Uh, the development of, you know, companions that utilize neural signals is something that we see a lot of investment and activity in and we are participating in. And then, um, you know, neural stimulations, as an example, are already coming out and AI helping tune those as a big thing. I, I think at a broader level, you've got um, probably three dimensions that people are utilizing um, medical data and AI and machine learning together on. I think one is about trying to tackle, like we are at BIOS, you know, new pieces of biology by getting, uh, you know, broader leverage on um, some sort of access to data and trying to link that to, to sort of medical or biotech insights. The sort of second dimension that I think will matter is that it will become accessible to a patient and also to their kind of frontline clinician, a way to interpret, you know, your biosignals, your health signals, actually some of your wellness metrics, and then also deeper things like your neural profile or your, your DNA sequence and sort of day-to-day -day consumer choices or your, your frontline healthcare decision-making can start to have, you know, some of this more complex data in the loop. And then I think finally, the power of the healthcare providers and their large systems and starting to actually unlock true benefit from these, you know, the patient records and the, the longitudinal monitoring over time to allow for, you know, real novel, not just cheaper forms of trialing medicines mm. where you've got some real insights that you're surfacing, but also actually achieving what sounds sort of trivial, but sort of system efficiencies, right? So trying to look for the data that allows, you know, an orthopedics clinic to self-learn and to streamline its provision of care, even using, you know, more traditional enterprise techniques, but by mastering the complexity of its sort of operational data. And I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, there is so much untapped value in this uh, and the actual better usage of EHR records to do exactly what you just said. Uh, I mean, I can familiarize with that a lot. And having said that, um, Emil, really big, big thank you for having that podcast today with me here. I really enjoyed the passion that you bring across, the, the leadership considerations that you put forward uh, around how you lead um, and also in COVID times on, on how you tackled it, but also your considerations around BIOS and the mission that you shared. I really enjoyed it and I, I want to wish you personally all the best for the journey ahead. I, I really Hope you keep up the great work that you're doing and, and help advance preventative, but also more precise healthcare and foster better and more personalized healthcare for decades to come. So big thanks for taking the time here today and um, sharing your insights. Thank you very much. And I think the key message from us today is that, you know, we're at the start of this journey on developing neural digital therapies. We've been able to do that, you know, at small scale with our own partners. But, you know, we're hoping that you know, those who are listening are curious enough to join us on that journey and, and find out more.
Oh, I'm sure you will have won over many, many listeners here uh, that are intrigued and are most likely interested in, in speaking to you personally and eluding on, on potentially joint opportunities here. Thank you. So big thanks, everyone, for listening in. I very much hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I really felt Emil's passion that it came through and I'll personally make sure to watch out for how BIOS Health is going to develop forward. With that said... I'm already looking forward to discussing the future of health with another very renowned individual from the healthcare space and who this will be is going to be disclosed very short term. So with that said, thanks again, stay safe and tune in next time. Strategy and strategy made real.